Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, should Halloween be canceled, the Premier wants to see the holiday celebrated safely through public health guidelines. We'll give you the details about that. Is there another confidence vote looming in the House of Commons over the WE charity scandal? Possibly. And Thursday will be the next debate taking place between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Now, this time, they're going to cut the mics off when it's not your turn to talk. One of them is not happy about it. I'll let you guess which one. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Halloween is coming up, and all of a sudden, Halloween seems to have been the focus of an awful lot of attention by our elected officials. It's all because of COVID-19, of course, and the concern that uh, the Premier and uh, the Prime Minister and, of course, locally, uh, our uh, medical officers of health have been talking about for the last little while. And that's, well, the recommendation is... Maybe not let the kids go out. We're going to talk about that in further detail. But I want to uh, get right down to what's going to be happening because there are two sets of rules here, what they call the hot spots, uh, which is the GTA, of course, Peel region, York region, and Ottawa. Uh, they're suggesting kids don't go out for Halloween at all. The rest of the province, including Hamilton, London, it's pretty much up to the discretion of the, of the local representatives, and we're going to get some detail on that. But yesterday, in his daily briefing, uh, the Premier says, look, at, he, he's just trying to look out for everybody. That's all he says. Here, here's, here's part of what uh, the Premier had to say yesterday. Celebrate Halloween. Just celebrate it in different ways. As I, as I mentioned, you know, do the pumpkin carving. Have fun at home. Uh, you know, I, you think I like doing this? I hate doing this. You know, Halloween's important. Like kids, it means everything. And I just, I don't like uh, doing this, but we have to do it to keep everyone safe. Those are the rules for some parts of the province. And, and of course, uh, we're not included in that as of yet. Uh, to get the local angle, though, please to welcome back to the program, Paul Johnson, who's the Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton during this uh, pandemic. Paul, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Hey, great to be with you, Bill. Do you get to mute my mic, mic as well when we're doing our shows? <laughs> new rule for your guests Meet the exactly exactly <laughs> listen I, I, if this works i hope they do it at hamilton city council but that's just me i, I know you're not supposed to talk about stuff i, like I that. will have no comment on that <laughs> yes i know but even though we're distance area i i can know i know you're nodding uh in agreement uh let's let's talk there's a number of things i want to get to through because of the the public health meeting that uh, they had with city council uh, the other day i bought an update on what's going on with the pandemic uh, but let's talk a little bit about Halloween, because I know that was part of the discussion as well. As I mentioned in the beginning, we are not in the, one of those hot zones, so uh, it's pretty much up to the discretion of individual families, I guess, but uh, with some parameters, I would think, Paul. Uh, yes, it is. So it, it is clear these days for people to realize that even though we're dominated by Toronto media in some ways, um, it's important to remember what's for the uh, Toronto, Peel, York now uh, region areas, and then, of course, Ottawa and what's for the rest of the province. And so there, there isn't the direct uh, from the province, uh, here's what you shouldn't do uh, a piece. But our own medical officer of health, um, you know, is encouraging residents to think about staying home and, and doing things in a different way, but not that direct, um, you know, thou shalt not uh, uh, head out on Halloween approach. Uh, Halloween needs to be different as were Easter, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Canada Day, Labor Day. Uh, recently at Thanksgiving, it's all about limiting the numbers of people that gather together. And so, you know, Halloween, we focus a lot on the trick-or-treating, but it's also important to note, particularly with it on a weekend this year, that there's oftentimes lots of parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, young and old get together for parties, and these are these are not the times to be planning any of those types of events. And then it, it is really think hard and long about trick-or-treating, and, um, and, you know, if you have to do it, uh, we put out some some... Uh, hints on the website uh, about that it needs to be in you know in small numbers and it needs to be you know don't go out if you're not feeling well at all and and um you know maybe have people knock on the door instead of ring the doorbell if you're handing out stuff and all those types of things because all those people ringing the doorbell or just yell trick or treat which i guess is the way you kind of should do it anyways but all those people pressing the doorbell, that's a high-touch surface all of a sudden, Bill. So these are the things, these are the reasons why people are suggesting that we do it in a different way or that we consider having it more as a home-based, small family uh, fair rather than the usual pieces. And again, um, I kind of feel for the Premier. I know Dr. Richardson and I feel the same way sometimes. You know, we don't really want to be talking about doing these things and the restrictions. Uh, the reality is, though, that we're we're just trying to limit those large gatherings, uh, which are the opportunities uh, for for the virus to spread. You talked about some of the other uh, 
days of note that we have gone through, Paul, uh, since this pandemic started, uh, going all the way back to February, uh, you know, the Victoria Day weekend, you mentioned Mother's Day. Uh, are you anticipating a, a spike or at least a bump up uh, after Halloween? Uh, well, let's hope not. Uh, it's it's know, happened the, after the, just the, about every one of those good, other weekends. The, the, yeah, it's one of those weekends again, and it's one of those times where we're focused in on if we do things uh, in a smart way, if we do things in a fashion that's safe, uh, we can, again, uh, not see this as an event that will cause our numbers to spike. We're about midway through that 14-day period from Thanksgiving, and the good news is over the last few days, our overall number of new cases is is, is down from what it was um, you know, before that. So this, these are good signs. I don't know where it will head today, tomorrow, and the next day, but we're hoping that we can keep these these numbers coming down into a reasonable level. And every time you have a, a, an opportunity for uh, major amounts of events and parties and people gathering together, whether it's with their families or whether it's with friends, uh, you have those opportunities for spread to occur. And all we're asking is that people, if they are going to do some things for Halloween, do it very, very safely, follow all of the rules and recognize that it is not going to be the same and it should not be the same. Um, and, and then really consider, first and foremost, is there a different way we can celebrate this year, kind of like the way we've been celebrating just about every other uh, major event through the year, and, and recognize that we'll come out of this at some point, we'll be back to uh, the usual way we do Halloween, uh, you know, hopefully next year, and, and just use this as 2020 being one of those very strange things that we'll look back on in history and say, wasn't that a, a strange and weird year? But the concern here, I guess, is, is is the social distancing and the social spread. I mean, because I know when you did the presentation to council the other day, that that was one of the things I know that you highlighted is that, uh, you know, during the different stages, and we can talk about that, I guess, in a second, of COVID and uh, whether or not we're into phase two of this or not. But social spread seems to be the main cause of, of the, uh, the way that it is spread. Obviously, the, the, the spin... Uh, thing that happened, of course, downtown Hamilton uh, is is a classic example of that, but not the only one. Well, it, is, it isn't the only one. And, and what was interesting about the way that our public health unit uh, showed how that spread uh, occurred is that you see all the other areas that, that, that happened. I mean, with this virus, before you show and exhibit symptoms, um, there is the ability to spread. And, and that's the tricky part of this. You can feel fine. And and look fine and everybody would say hey you know you you obviously aren't sick um but if we get too close if we aren't wearing masks those types of things and there's the ability for it to spread in those other social environments so not only is it, is it the activity itself it's where people go and what people do after certain activities and i don't think anybody sets out to go and spread this virus the reality is at times you don't know you're spreading it you don't know that other people are spreading it and that's the challenge with coronavirus that we're uh, we're, we're learning about but what we do know is that these types of, of activities where we're getting larger groups of people together uh, outdoors is obviously less risk than indoors but it, it's not no risk outdoors and i hear that a lot that people say oh we're outdoors it doesn't matter and i said well <laughs> We still need to keep that two-meter separation. We still need to, if we can't, uh, be wearing masks. We, we still need to make sure that we're not, you know, um, doing some of these other unsafe practices in terms of, of, of heightening our risk. And that's whether we're outdoors or indoors. And that's why, uh, you know, we don't want this to be a, a case where then it's linked to people going back after these events to their own families, visiting other people, and all of a sudden you have uh, it linked back to an event, walking out and trick-or-treating, but then realizing that several families uh, have outbreaks in their own home. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing we're trying to avoid because you can see with the SpinCo example of how that spread occurs beyond the people that were in that class because that was a set number of people, Bill, but now you see the, the knock-on effect of where other people were going and what they were doing after that class. And when that Spinco thing made news, and it made international news, obviously, because of the impact that it had in such a short period of time, uh, there was a great concern. I'm sure you saw this on social media, Paul, about other gyms and, and physical activity areas. I oh, my God, they're going to lock the doors on us right now. You haven't done that, uh, but you have set some new regulations and some new rules about how they should actually uh, carry on in a, in a gym atmosphere. Yeah, we, we have uh, around uh, numbers and around the use of masks. And so uh, the Medical Officer of Health here in Hamilton, again, we're not under the same rules as uh, Toronto and, and Peel and, and York Region and in our area of the, of the province or Ottawa. 
but we are asking gyms to take some additional measure, measures. And uh, the reason for that is, is, is pretty simple. We're now learning, obviously, through the SpinCo example, uh, a little bit more about how we need to, you know, ensure we do the right things in, in, in these environments. And we do not want to uh, stop people from having physical activity and exercise because it's critically important that, uh, that that occur. It's, it's really how you do that, um, you know, how you do that, that safely. And so uh, we're uh, increasing the physical distancing uh, to three meters between every person that's involved in that exercise or physical activity. Um, we need to, uh, you know, make sure that there, there are fewer people uh, in a group fitness class and training session. So that capacity limit is now uh, 10 persons, including the staff and uh, and or having three meter separation. Um, but there's the maximums and spacing there that needs to. And we need people to wear face coverings when they're engaged in physical activity as well. And this is really, you know, Bill, as we learn more about this virus and we learn more about the different areas that we're doing our day-to-day living, um, we have to adjust the rules because obviously, uh, despite um, you know following the guidance at the time, uh, we had uh, a fair degree of spread that occurred uh, at Spinco, and it could happen in other environments as well. Well, there's another element to it too that I found interesting, and, and again, it comes to the, your point about that we've learned more about the virus. Uh, if you're going to be in one of those classes or in any kind of a gym situation, uh, no yelling, <laughs> which which sounds yeah. kind of silly, but the fact is, is we know that these droplets that uh, that all of us, uh, you know, exclude by every time that we yell or scream or something like that, they go a lot farther than two meters uh, when somebody's worked up and they're screaming. Uh, so you know, this is this is really a safety measure to, to ensure that there is not going to be any spread. Because, like you say, I don't know too many people that go to a gym thinking, oh, I don't feel too well today. I'm going to. If you're asymptomatic, you don't know that you've got the virus yet but you could still spread it to somebody else so this this all makes sense and i don't i don't think these are really too onerous for the people that are running these facilities it's it's not as if they got to put plexiglass up between every bicycle or anything like that this is really just wearing the same protection that we should be wearing anytime it it is it's you know it's extending it a bit we started with saying you know when you're engaged in the activity you can take the mask off um now we're saying, you know, no, and people are saying, well, geez, I, then I can't do certain activities, a mask, I, I don't feel comfortable. And we're saying, well, then find another pursuit for physical activity. I, you know, I, I hear this as well. Sometimes people are saying, well, you're, you're not allowing me to do the one thing that I do for physical activity. And I, again, in 2020, maybe we have to look at different ways to get our physical activity. As you know, Bill, I'm a basketball official. There isn't a lot of basketball going on right now. So I have yeah. to find other ways to keep myself active. Um, I, I don't just sit there every day and say, why can't we play basketball and referee basketball? I say, okay, I'll walk, I'll use a treadmill, I'll do some other types of activity. And, and this is where we are at the moment. And so if people don't feel comfortable with these new uh, requirements in place, uh, then look at other means to get uh, your activity. And, and you, you come to the shouting piece and the, all the rest. And, and there is a reason, you know, singing and shouting and raised voices, obviously that, that, um, allows these droplets to travel further. And the reality is that becomes difficult to judge completely uh, how loud you are and, and how, how far they go. So the best thing is for us to, if people do need to project their voices, we're encouraging them to use a microphone system so that they can speak in a normal tone but still project if it's in a class setting. And then obviously not have some of the rah-rah, um, you know, get everybody voices going in a class uh, this really just needs to be about the exercise, which is critically important, and we want people to get their exercise uh, without some of the bells and whistles that uh, may have occurred in the past. Uh, got a couple of minutes left, and I also just want to touch on something that you guys talked about with City Council the other day, about where we are uh, in this process with uh, COVID-19. Uh, a lot of people are saying, hey, we're into the second wave, and I know you had an epidemiologist, uh, Dr. Stephanie Hughes, was uh, was part of the presentation the other day, uh, basically saying that uh, this isn't, you know, we got a long way to go here. I, people that see, as you just mentioned, that the numbers were actually down in Hamilton this past week, and that's great news. Uh, don't get this false sense of security that you've got this thing licked. It just, as, as Dr. Hughes suggested to counselors, it could pro- likely get a lot worse as Luna comes on here, and we're going to be inside more often. Uh, and she kind of, I, I guess the characterization, that what we're doing right now is almost like the pregame show for the second wave of this, and we don't know how bad that second wave is going to be. And it really depends on, on how we behave, doesn't it? It really does, and it becomes harder as we head into the winter because we always had the out of get outside. And once you're outside, we do know that the risk drops. So even if there is a little bit of a, 
uh, breakdown in some of the practices. Uh, the fact you're outside lowered the risk to begin with. Uh, indoors is very different, and we uh, we do know that the uh, the virus uh, seems to really enjoy spreading in those indoor environments where there's a regular contact and close contact over long periods of time, and that's what we're heading into a period of in this part of uh, of the world. So we do need to be aware of that. Uh, all of these things we're doing are to to keep ourselves at a decent rate, not overwhelm systems. Um, the good news is our hospitalizations are not increasing at a, at, a, at a worrying rate, so that's good news. That allows hospitals to do the other types of treatments and surgeries and things that they need to do. So all of this is about protecting our ability to, by and large, live our lives the way we want to. And to, back to your point, um, relatively um, in, uh, unintrusive uh, actions on our part are going to allow us to have other surgeries available in hospitals are going to allow us to go to work and go to the gym and have uh, meals either you know go collect meals or have meals out all of those things will be open to us they will look different and they will be a bit different but uh, the other reality is what you see happening in toronto peel and york where there are closures uh, you can't go and have indoor dining anymore uh, gyms are closing it's uh, it's fairly dramatic, and we don't want to get there in Hamilton. So, yes, we've got a long way to go. We still don't have any immunity to this, by and large, in our community. Uh, it's there. The virus hasn't gone anywhere. And uh, we need to, to make sure that our efforts are, are very, very strong as we head into these winter months. Anybody who wants to uh, get the uh, lowdown on all these regs that we've been talking about, uh, go to the city website, whether it's the city of Hamilton or city of London for our CFPL listeners, because uh, that's updated on a daily basis, and they'll let you know what's going on. As always, Paul, thanks so much for this. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. You bet. Thanks a lot, Bill. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Services for the City of Hamilton during the pandemic. And uh, word to the wise, just follow the rules. I think we're all going to be okay. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, getting pretty hot up in Ottawa, and I don't mean uh, the weather. I'm talking about the uh, atmosphere inside the House of Commons. Uh, you know, we've got a number of key issues, including the fisheries corrupt dispute that's going on, of course, in Nova Scotia these days. We talked about that with the Prime Minister on a, when he was a guest on our show yesterday. And uh, there was an emergency debate about that yesterday, and it got rather heated uh, with the opposition parties, all of them, uh, demanding that the government do something about this and get into the middle of that. That's one element of this. But there's also some other things that are happening vis-a-vis uh, -vis a new anti-corruption committee that the uh, conservative government under uh, Aaron O'Toole are trying to put forth. So uh, it's it's getting kind of messy, and there's some concern right now that it might get to the point and the, where the, there could be a snap election as a result. And I don't think anybody saw that coming a week ago. But with holding this emergency debate, in, which is going to continue on again uh, today, uh, is uh, over the conflict between Indigenous and commercial fisheries in Nova Scotia. And while Liberal ministers are condemning the violence, everybody else is saying, yeah, well, what are you going to do about it? Global's Abigail Beeman was there, and she reports. The Indigenous Services Minister called the violence disgusting, unacceptable and racist and stressed Mi'kmaq are only taking a tiny proportion of area lobsters. The Public Safety Minister says more police resources are now on the ground. But the Sabanakati First Nation chief says it's not enough. He says his fishers face the prospect of more vandalism to their equipment on the water. The fisheries minister says the definition of moderate livelihood is being negotiated with Indigenous peoples behind closed doors, but that it's up to First Nations to help define it. While commercial fishers say the government is ignoring them, saying they've been raising concerns for years. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Ottawa. So where's this all going to go? Well, let's bring Henry Jasek into the conversation, professor of political science at McMaster University. Uh, Henry, thanks for the time. Great to have you back on the show today. Okay, I'm happy to be here. It uh, didn't take long for these guys to get uh, at each other's throats again, did it? I mean, this is obviously the fisheries thing is going to be a major problem. But now uh, this proposal about an anti-corruption committee that the conservatives are trying to push has is, uh, is really ruffled some feathers. Yes, well, I think they're two separate issues and with yeah. the two different dynamics. But maybe deal with this anti-corruption committee thing. Is it essentially, I think Aaron O'Toole is trying to basically put his mark on the on the uh, House of Commons, show that he's a, a really strong leader. He's trying to take control of the situation. And I think they've crafted this uh, proposal to make it difficult for the other small opposition parties to uh, back the government, like who, who, who should be against an anti-corruption committee, puts pressure on the NDP and the Bloc Québécois. And then uh, Trudeau, okay, he has to put his pressure onto the uh, 
those minority, small minority parties by saying, okay, uh, if I lose this vote, we're going to have an election. So, so, the, so the, both the, uh, the NDP, especially, and the Bloc Québécois are in a, in, in a tight vice. They're being cr- crushed between a rock and a hard place right now uh, between, the, between the two parties. And so it's great fun for the conservatives and the liberals, not so much fun for the uh, NDP and the Bloc Québécois. What's in a name, if I can paraphrase Shakespeare for a second, Henry? Because it's, it's, I don't think it's even so much the intent of an oversight committee. It's the name, anti-corruption. That's right. The, the implication is there is corruption in this government. That's right, and all the opposition parties should go to help root it out in a minority government. So it was, the name was well-crafted, right? Yeah. And, uh, so, but it's really part of, uh, you know, this sort of, a, a, you know, some, these. as I said, the fight is, you know, seemingly between the two two major parties but it's everything that's going on is really putting pressure on on the uh, on the smaller opposition parties the NDP and the bloc and you're right, uh, the way that the government's tried to turn the tables on them uh, the house leader uh, pa- Pablo Rodriguez uh, basically said that if you pass this and by definition say that we're corrupt that's a non-confidence vote and we're going to snap a call election you know the prime minister is going to go see the governor general uh and i don't think anybody really wants that i mean you know they all say they don't but i mean you get the sense henry that anybody's in a position right now to fight an election well i don't think anybody really wants to and i think you know the conservatives were unhappy when they heard you know the liberals were going to define this as a confidence motion because they now found that uh, you know the liberals matched them in in the power rhetoric and upped them a bit so they got so now they have to figure out what are they going to do with this one i so i, I don't think this one's going anywhere at this point i think everybody's going to concede we're not going to have an election <laughs> at this point cuz no, no one really wants one. Uh, you know, everybody wants to threaten one, but nobody wants. Well, the two major parties want to threaten each other, but they they don't really want an election right now. And certainly, the Bloc and the NDP are right now don't want an election. Certainly not at this issue. The Bloc would have been a bit different when the Wee scandal was was uh, when people were talking about it. But listen, but the Wee scandal has pretty much played out, and people really aren't interested in it anymore. So the, the, the bloc lost the leverage they might have had on the liberals in Quebec at that point if there was an election. So they're, they've been very quiet about this. They don't want an election. Well, yeah, and the reporting we've heard this morning is that uh, the conservatives are now reconsidering the name of the, this, this proposed committee. I guess they want to turn the heat down a little bit. You're right. Or maybe try to make it acceptable. Yeah. And, and hopefully they can get a committee without the government threatening that it's a motion of confidence. But the liberals probably know that, you know, at this point, they've got all the opposition parties worried about an election. So they they probably feel pretty good for the time being, at least on this issue. On this issue. Well, let's talk about the other big one that caused the emergency debate in the House yesterday. Uh, This is serious stuff. This isn't just playing politics. Uh, uh, You know, between what's going on with the the two elements here, of course, the commercial fishers and, of course, the aboriginals. uh, And, uh, boy, uh, there's elements of of, of accusing each other of racist views, uh, of, of, you know, depleting the stock. I mean, there's a lot of finger-pointing going on here. Oh, yeah. I mean, this this is a sad case of where, for 21 years, You've had all sorts of different players um, take take a position on this, and nobody's really taken um, what I think is a pointed the way to a winning solution here. And I would begin with the courts. I mean, the courts started this whole thing 21 years ago by saying, "Well, the particular uh, you know uh, f- indigenous fishers are owed a, a moderate uh, livelihood." Okay, that's wonderful. What they've done, though is the courts waited on as in something that is essentially an economic issue. When you're talking about a moderate, moderate livelihood, we're talking about dollars and cents. So, but the courts aren't really very good at actually proposing, uh, you know, economic policy. And they just let it drop there, uh, applied, a, you know, a, 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 you know a, a, an illegal issue, a legal issue uh, and, and, but, it's with, but with these economic overtones. Now, the federal government, what it should have done over the last 21 years, its economists, whether in the, you know, the Ministry of Fisheries and Oceans or other economists, should have figured out for those, for those aboriginal uh, indigenous uh, fishers what, what is a moderate income. 
But for 21 years, they haven't done that. So you can place the blame. Well, where's the bureaucracy on here? And where has been past governments, including the present government? None of them have come up with the definition. So what I think happened is that, you know, the indigenous fishers just said, well, you know, nobody's come up with it. So we have to define what is a moderate income. And we are only going to get a moderate income if we fish outside of the federally um, uh, defined season for the lobster fishery in that area. So they took it upon themselves to define what is a moderate income for them. And of course, and that then set off, you know, the non-indigenous fishers to say, hey, you know, you're, uh, you know, you're not, you know, we, we should have a voice in this and that you shouldn't defy just the federal rules by, uh, you know, and define something that no one else has agreed with. The federal government hasn't agreed with your definition. The province hasn't. We haven't. And so that set the whole thing off. And if, and if you listen to all the political parties, none of them has really, I think, a viable solution here. And I'll just say quickly, there's two ways where I think they got to go. First of all, they have to figure out, given the conditions in that part of Nova Scotia for these indigenous uh, fishers, what what is a uh, you know what is a moderate li- livelihood? And they got to you know somebody's got to come up with some dollar and cents uh, type of uh, definition here, which hasn't been done. And the other thing is organizational. And so the only organization that I think can f- work this whole thing out is you've got to have a, a advisory body about this particular fishery in which everybody's represented who's on the ground there. That includes. You know the the uh, the indigenous fishers, and there's at least two wings of the non-indigenous fishers. You've got the vast majority of the uh, non-indigenous fishers are don't don't want any violence. They're very embarrassed by this violence, the burning of a warehouse with the indigenous, you know, caught lobsters in it, and mm-hmm. the, the the punching and you know other stuff that went on in a, in a demonstration, counter demonstration. So they're they're there, and then you've got sort of these more extreme elements of the of the uh, non-indigenous fishers who are using violence and have a history of using it, whether on the water or arson or just throwing a punch at somebody. So this is this is this is this is a you know I think that's what that's what ha- that's where we have to go. But we don't have anybody who's really doing it. You know, is really moving on those areas. And I'm you know I think it will go another 21 years without any resolution of this unless they they take these kinds of practical steps. But Henry, when are the, uh, as Churchill said, when will the lesson be learned? Because uh, governments have been doing this for years, and and you know they just figure if we don't even talk about this problem, maybe it'll go away. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, the, and we saw that in Caledonia. We've, we're seeing it in Nova mm-hmm. Scotia now. And when these things flare up all of a sudden, and everybody is shocked, well, it's because there was so much inaction in this, and 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 I I understand the frustration on both sides, and you know I. I know the reporting that we had over the weekend, and it got pretty testy down there on the weekend, uh, but the, there seemed to be a consensus that, well, we're not really mad at each other. We're mad at the federal and provincial government for not getting this straightened out. Uh, I saw the, the global news last night. They're mad at each other now. They, as you say, there are fistfights breaking out in some areas there right now. The, the government's short response to this, when I asked the prime minister about this yesterday, he said, well, we're sending more, more RCMP in there. Well, that may help with the, you know keeping the peace, but it's not resolving the issue at all. No, not at all. I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, what you need to do is have people talk together and, and try to come to some, slowly come to some agreements about about some of the basic issues. And, yeah, and just just throwing in the RCMP temporary, you know, may temporarily, you know, cool things down. But as soon as you, you know, you, you just, you know, after a while, this will bubble back up again. So you, the whole conditions are for this thing to keep to keep on going, unfortunately. And you're absolutely right. Is that, you know, particularly the government, the federal government, and again, I'd say whatever party is in, uh, just sort of turns their backs on these types of issues. And you mentioned the Caledonia one we had here, and when we had Stephen Harper, and it was always a big, you know, big story. When's joke was, when is Stephen Harper going to visit uh, the constituency of Haldeman, Norfolk, where, where, where Caledonia is? And he never came. He always, he skirted all around the area, but he never, he never ever addressed or went down or did anything about what was going on down there and hoping that nobody would notice. And, uh, and, and Trudeau calls for peace there, but I mean, it, it, just calling for peace or having a debate in the, in the federal House of Commons doesn't solve this issue. 
it it, it, get, it doesn't really get anywhere anywhere you've essentially have to have an organizational solution uh, at the local level that brings people to talk to each other and we got to get economists and others involved in providing the economic data saying well this is this is what is a uh, uh, you know a moderate livelihood and let let's have a discussion after the economists throw some um, numbers on the table well, especially because of the accusations going back and forth. I mean, uh, as yeah. you say, the commercial fishers are suggesting that uh, that this is a conservation issue, yet some independent experts from Dalhousie University on the East Coast have said, look, there's, there's lots to go around here. There is no shortage of lobster. Uh, so that's not even on the table, which obviously tends to move the discussion to, well, is this uh, just about race then? Are they just ticked off at them because of, uh, of their indigenous status? Uh, they don't want to admit that. No one usually wants to admit something like that. So, so mm-hmm. there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack here. This is not going to get resolved in a one-hour board meeting somewhere. No, no, no. It has to be continuous discussions and people who come up with some, you know, make an argument. Oh, the the uh, the uh, indigenous fishers are ta- are endangering the the lobster stock. Well, they'd have to present some evidence of that. And you know, we would look. You know, right next door to that fishery is the Maine lobster fishery, the state of Maine in the United States. And they have totally open season, and they don't seem to be short of lobster at all. So, uh, you know, there, there, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that, in fact, uh, the, the, this indigenous uh, fishery, which is uh, relatively small, uh, is, is, is a problem. I just really think, I think for a number of the non-indigenous people, they have an innate sense of fairness, and somehow it's unfair for other fishers to be able to fish outside the federal season while we have while we as the non-indigenous fishers have to obey the rules and follow you know only fish inside the uh, federal season I-, I think there's a lot of that there actually and 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 i think a discussion of why of how uh, how uh, you know the the fishing seasons affect not only the fishery but affect people's economic livelihood has to be discussed on a on a face-to-face basis there unless you do it with everybody drawn into this advisory committee from who represents all the major you know uh, fishers there i i, I don't think we're going to you're not going to get a real solution i don't think because this is expanding to the point that it has, and our reporters yesterday were telling us that uh, there are demonstrations in different parts of the province right now in support of uh, the indigenous fishers, right, right, and, and some counter demonstrations about that too. Does the prime minister himself step into this, or is it just delegated to the fisheries minister to try to resolve this? Well, the fisheries minister has to basically also get support of uh, whoever you know. He they have their own economists, but they probably they can probably gets you know need some help from the finance minister's economists as well to really you know present economic data about you know the economic status of uh, of all the people in that area and all the people who who make their livelihood out of that out of that fishery and so there's an understanding of how much money your people are making and so let's suppose you you collect all the data and you say even with the uh, indigenous fishers going out a little bit early, uh, they're still making less than the non-indigenous fishers. Well, I think that would change the nature of the debate. Now, if you showed that, on the other hand, the indigenous fishers are making a lot more money than the non-indigenous, then you have to, you know, talk to the, um, you know, the uh, non-indigenous fishers and say, okay, uh, that that uh, we may have to have, uh, maybe maybe you can go out a little bit outside of the mandate, but you can't basically decide that you're going to go out whenever you want. So that's, that's why we need to have some evidence on the table about people's incomes and livelihood. I, I think that's necessary, and there's absolutely no evidence out in the public, and I, and I assume the government hasn't collected this inside, but they should have. Uh, if it is they do have it, they should put it on the table. So we have what's the real economic situation mm-hmm. there, because exactly. I think that would you know, deal with coming to a solution on fairness, which I think, I really suspect the number of these people, you know, in the non-indigenous community think, you know, are not thinking in terms of rights, they're thinking in terms of fairness. And, of course, we have to blend the two together and come out of a situation, and I think that it only gets done by dialogue face-to-face. Henry, as always, thanks so much for your input into this. Great talking with you again today. Okay, Bill. Hopefully this will get solved sooner rather than later. Hope so. Henry Jasek, of course, political science professor at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Thursday evening, 
the third and final presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden will take place. And, uh, well, they've modified some of the rules because of, uh, well, what happened in the first debate, of course, and even the vice presidential debate with uh, people talking over each other and, uh, well, very, very difficult to follow exactly what's going on. But will it make a difference in the in the race, uh, which is only two weeks away now? Uh, Aaron Call joins us, uh, Director of Debate at the University of Michigan and editor and co-author of Debating the Donald. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, it's good to be back with you. Let me ask you, it, with the, the rules that they've put in place now, uh, which essentially mean that if you're not speaking in the, the first part of this debate here, when you have two minutes to answer, uh, the uh, the other guy's mic is going to be shut off now, so there hopefully is not going to be anybody talking over each other. Uh, is that going to lower the temperature in the room enough for this to be a, a, a decent-sized debate and, a, and a, an intelligent debate of what, what's going to be happening and the issues? Um, a little bit. I think that um, you know there was hope that the moderator would have uh, the ability to cut the mic of both candidates at any time during debate, but that wasn't something that could be agreed to by both campaigns. It's tough to change the rules once the debate cycle is already underway. So this was kind of a compromise that just automatically the moderator doesn't even determine for the first uh, two minutes that each candidate speaks during each segment, um, the opponent's uh, microphone, the, the person that's not speaking, uh, will be muted automatically. And so that's better uh, than the first debate that we witnessed in Cleveland. But, you know, each segment's 15 minutes, and so this is only four of the 15 minutes uh, per each segment, and there's six segments. So it's not like um, the moderator has control over that for the entire time. So we could still see the interruptions. But I think that not even a rule change is, uh, you know, necessary to stop and make the interruptions less. Just um, the negative reaction to the first debate, the fact that the ratings were down 13% from the first debate in 2016, the terrible reaction. Uh, that is going to kind of cause both candidates, I think, to interrupt less and, and do less ad hominem attacks. Um, the vice presidential debate in Salt Lake City was uh, perceived much better because it was more substantive, uh, substantive policy debates, and it was the second most watched vice presidential debate ever in the United States. So I think the candidates are going to take a cue from that and have more of a debate over some different policies, and you won't see all the constant interruptions and the inability to answer questions this time. So I think it'll just um, improve just because of that because the first one went so poorly. Based on what we saw in the first uh, debate and the performance uh, and even the vice presidential debate, pretty safe bet that uh, phrases like uh, white supremacy is going to come up here, Black Lives Matter and Antifa, these these seem to be uh, you know, punchlines, I guess, I guess, for the candidates and, and something they continually throw out there. Now, even if they're not asked to, or included in the question the moderator asks, uh, is it a pretty safe bet that they're going to steer them uh, their, their ways towards uh, the discussion about those things as well? Yes. Yeah, so just like in the first debate, um, the six topics have already been announced um, and are totally up to the discretion of the moderator, uh, Kristen Welker from NBC News. And it's going to start off with coronavirus, but also, as you mentioned, it's going to talk about things like uh, racial relations uh, in the United States. And so, you know, Black Lives Matter and things like that will certainly be discussed under that rubric. Uh, leadership, national security and others. And so, you know, we have an idea, at least, of what the framework and the um, the outline of the six uh, topics are. But, as you mentioned, um, the, can the moderator can uh, ask questions, and then uh, the, the candidates are free to talk about anything uh, they may like. And so it can go off into a, a, a number of different directions. And as we saw in the vice presidential debate, uh, Susan Page of USA Today did her best to, to ask pointed questions. And then maybe there was a little bit of an answer, but then um, especially Mike Pence would kind of uh, pivot to things that, the, that he wanted to talk about. And, and Kamala Harris did the same when you know, she wasn't willing to answer certain questions. Um, and that's just you know, part of the debate. Uh, there's certain things that the candidates would rather not talk about. Um, President Trump would like to not talk about what his um, replacement is to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Joe Biden would, not, would like not to talk about his son and you know, his business dealings in, in Ukraine and China, he would not like to talk about if he was going to, you know, pack the court or increase the size of the Supreme Court if Amy Coney Barrett is, uh, is you know, confirmed to the court before the election. And so uh, some things just don't pull as well, and uh, candidates try to avoid them, and they try to pivot to more um, comfortable uh, terrain for them. And the question is how the audience will hold that against them, if they will view it as, oh, they're ducking the question and not answering asking what the question of the moderator would like, or if they like the answer and like where they go, then they could be rewarded for that.
Yeah, as soon as you hear this phrase, uh, yeah, but I want to go back to whatever the issue is. You know that, okay, you know, it's going to start uh, and go back and forth on that. Because, I, I, I mean, these guys all do their own polling anyway, don't they, Aaron? And they know what resonates with their, their crowd, their base, and their supporters. And uh, it's, it's incumbent upon them, I guess, to make sure that those points get brought up uh, during the debate. Yes, I mean, base uh, support, enthusiasm, turnout is really important um, for President Trump. That's been one of his strengths. He has, you know, uh, 30 to 40 percent that are really committed toward him and are through thick and thin, no matter what happens, uh, they're going to uh, support him. And so things like uh, conservative nominations to uh, federal courts, especially the Supreme Court, uh, is very important. Um, not having a national mask mandate because saying that you know, that should be left up to local uh, you know, states and governments and, uh, you know, that's uh, something important to him. For uh, Joe Biden, uh, his, he knows that he's got this uh, uh, left, you know, kind of part of the party uh, that, you know, Bernie Sanders and others supported. And they, you know, view this as, as kind of ramming through a, a controversial judge at the last second. And they, you know, want to do things like banning fracking and, and the Green New Deal and things like that. But uh, so he's got to kind of, you know, have an ode to that uh, because he, there are a lot of uh, people on the left side of the uh, Democrats that didn't turn out in 2016 in major cities, places like uh, Detroit, Milwaukee, uh, Philadelphia. And that's part of the reason that Hillary Clinton did not win, because they voted for President Obama in, in 08 and 12, but not Hillary Clinton. So you have to make sure that they're enthused. But at the same time, you don't want to uh, lose people that are more moderate and in the middle that Joe Biden has done a good job of getting right now. And so it's a really tough balance for them to do. Obviously, both sides need to cater to their bases and make sure they're enthused and turn out. But there's still this small 5% sliver of the voting population that maybe voted for Obama, then Trump, and then the Democrats in 2018 and are still up, uh, you know, have not made up their mind in 2020, haven't really voted yet. And so those are the real small slice segments that uh, uh, both candidates have to be concerned about and, and pitch their arguments to on Thursday night. When you talk about style, though, and, and obviously this idea about cutting the mics off for the first part of the debate is, is to try to temper everybody's uh, attitudes and their enthusiasm, I guess, to try to jump at each other. Uh, but when it comes to the individual style, I mean, Trump's base, the people that, as you say, love him no matter what, uh, they want the combat of Donald Trump, don't they? They want him talking over. They want him attacking uh, Dr. Fauci and Joe Biden, uh, you know, and, and, you know, calling the Biden family, you know, a, a corrupt empire, a, a criminal enterprise and all these sorts of things. They, they eat that sort of stuff up. So I got to figure that the Trump is going to lean that way at least some of the time. Yes, yes, that's all true. And um, they, you know, in debates, uh, there definitely is political currency to be gained by attacking the moderator, attacking the media. I will say that there's a little bit less benefit to that in this cycle of debates this year because the because of coronavirus, the crowd sizes have been so much smaller. Mm -hmm. In yeah. Cleveland, it was like between 75 and 80. In Salt Lake City, it was maybe 100 or 200. And I imagine there'll be a similar size crowd in Nashville, Tennessee. And that's much smaller than a normal debate. In a normal debate, you could have a presidential 1,000 and a primary debate, several thousand. And those attacking of you know, the media and elites and the moderators, um, that can you know, really cause uh, big applause lines. Um, and uh, the candidates feed off that, and you know, it works for them in a debate. But that's not really be you know, not able to replicate that this time because the crowds are so small and nonpartisan, and so you may not get about as much mileage there. But, but you're right, you know, Trump's base is very important to him, and obviously he can't win if they're not enthused and they don't turn out. Republicans have, have done well with new um, voting registration numbers recently, but... The question is, can President Trump win if his, his major focus is on a base-only strategy? If he doesn't appeal to moderates, to independents, um, to disaffected Democratic voters, it may simply, the math may not work out for him to win either a popular vote uh, victory or in the Electoral College, given demographic changes from 2016 and, and what we saw in the midterms in 2018. So uh, the base is a big part of the strategy, but it may not be enough to take him over the finish line for re-election, and he may still need other voters. We're on things like coronavirus. You know, these people really support uh, Anthony Fauci and others, so it's a real tough line that he has to walk. How many undecided voters are there really out there with two weeks to go here? I mean, there's always that element every time we see one of these maps and Steve Karnacki's up there from MSNBC and, of course, you know, going through all the, the machinations of what could be, et cetera. Uh, at, at this point, do you think most people have made up their mind? They may not want to say publicly who they're going to vote for, but they've made up their mind? Yes, definitely most. I would say the current estimates look like about 95% of voters have made up their mind. Um, early voting, I think about 33 million people have already voted. And both of that um, really 
dwarfs in comparison to 2016. There was less early voting. Obviously, we weren't in the midst of a pandemic. There were many more undecided voters, maybe between 15 and 20 percent were, to- were totally undecided, you know, through the, the third debate and even into the final weeks of, of the campaign. So this is a totally different dynamic where people are voting before these debates even occur. And there's just uh, less people, you know, were so polarized that they, they have firm opinions of, of Biden and Trump. Biden's been on the political stage for 50 years and you know, Trump's been, even before a politician, he's been a celebrity, and so people have an opinion of him. We've gone through four years of his administration. So people are really dug in. You know, there's not many third-party, as many third-party options as there was in 2016. So it is a smaller sliver of people that maybe, um, you know, make their decisions based on these debates. But in an election that's really close, the you know, one that's decided by 10,000 votes in one state, then even though there are less voters, there's still enough to actually make a difference in a really close election. The phrase October surprise has been bandied about for the last number of elections. It's uh, usually uh, somebody digging up something about the, their opponent just days before or weeks before. Uh, uh, the, the announcement from Jim Comey in the last election that they, they were reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails uh, just a few days before the election, uh, many observers feel was a, a pivotal point uh, that might have driven some of those undecided voters over to Trump instead of to the Clinton uh, camp in situations like that. Uh, the surprises <laughs> this time around, Aaron, started way back in September. The October surprise stuff is almost passe now uh have have voters seen everything they're going to see is, is the, enough mud been slung now that they're just going to say enough is enough oh i definitely wouldn't want to <laughs> tell you definitively yes on that um as you mentioned october surprises have been a big part of american politics going back several decades um even in 2016 you know when jim comey said they were reopening the hillary clinton email investigation i believe that happened like on october 28th which yeah. was very close uh to the election um, we have seen many surprises. We saw the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, you know, coronavirus uh, itself has been uh, certainly a, a surprise. The uh, trying to get Amy Coney Barrett confirmed by the election, uh, but there's definitely further things that could occur. Um, President Trump right now is calling for uh, the Attorney General to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate uh, Joe Biden's son, and you know, let the people know of a potential investigation going on there. And so that's something that certainly could occur, something through the Justice Department, something legal, um, even going back to the you know, Russia investigation, if there are any charges against people from the Obama-Biden administration about that. So even though there's only two weeks to go to the election today um, and that it would be uh, out of the norm and to have something like that uh, so close to the election, just given our history and with this uh, current administration, you just don't know uh, what to expect. I definitely um, wouldn't uh, say it's out of the question, but at the same time, the impact of any such even later October surprise would be less than a typical year, given how prevalent early voting in has been thus far and people's minds are made up. It would take, it would take a gargantuan uh, surprise uh, at a very late date to make uh, a big enough difference, I think, to impact the election since we're so close to it. Uh, there are some commentators, Aaron, that are assuming when they see these long lineups and the, the percentage of early voting uh, that that indicates change. People usually go out in those numbers when they, they want to see a change, in, in this case in the White House. That's uh, it, it, probably, uh, there may well be an element to that too, but as you mentioned earlier, uh, in many of these uh, combat states, you know, the, the ones that are up for grabs right now, like Michigan, Wisconsin, places like that, uh, Republican registration has gone up as well. So th- I guess the question here is, do you believe the numbers that you're seeing right now, where Biden's got uh, anywhere from an 8 to 10 point lead nationally and, and a percentage point lead in some of these uh, battleground states, but significant leads in others? Uh, there are, there's another stream of thought here that says this is going to be a lot closer than a lot of people think. Yeah, and the, actually even the Biden campaign has said that. You know, they put out some um kind of a release from their campaign saying uh, our internal polls show that the race is a lot closer than, you know, these national polls, uh, even state polls, like you mentioned, that show potentially a double-digit lead. Um, I think part of the reason is that they don't want people to think that this race is in the bag and, you know, to just not vote. A lot of people did not vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016 because they thought that it was, um, you know, her victory was assured and they, they stayed home and obviously we saw what happened. So uh, even if it, it wasn't as close as they thought, I think they would still want to, you know, have the perception of a closer race just to make sure people both turn out and also its effect on the down ballot. But there's definitely a lot of uh, skepticism about the polling, given what happened in 2016. Um, I think the national polling was pretty accurate in 2016, but a lot of the major battleground states, even Michigan, the one that I was in, were, were wrong. They, they showed Hillary Clinton lead, and that didn't exist. I do think the pollsters have done a better job in the last four years kind of reweighting their polls and, and uh, accounting for education and things like that. And so I do think there's a little more faith in them, but at the same time, 
uh, we could also be in uh, store for a surprise on Election Day, and that wouldn't be unprecedented, and we certainly went through that already in 2016. But, but yes, Joe Biden seems to be doing well amongst early voting. Uh, early voting is increasing, but, you know, sometimes people who vote early, uh, they cannibalize those that would just vote, you know, regularly during the election. And so uh, he may have a lead going in, but then, you know, Trump voters in the day of the election could, you know, could counteract that and make things, uh, very close. And as you pointed out, yes, registration for uh, new voters in many of the contested states, uh, aside from Arizona, uh, Republicans have been favored in that. And so uh, there's, it's, certain, it's certain that it's, it's unclear exactly how it's all going to shape out. And, and also early voting is also uh, more prone to be discounted. Either, you know, they didn't put it in a proper envelope, there's not a signature match and things like that. So even if, if, if Biden does have a lead in some of these early votes, um, they disproportionately have a greater chance of getting thrown out than people that vote on Election Day. And so that could be something that uh, does make things closer than it appears as of now. Uh, obviously, the presidency is, a, is, the, is the big prize here, and, and that's the one that seems to be the focus of most of our attention. But are, are we paying enough attention to the, to the Senate? You talked about the down ticket and the impact it, that might occur on election night because of that. Uh, who controls the Senate is actually pivotal to whoever is in the White House getting what they want to ha- get done done. And uh, we've seen that happen, of course, uh, you know, when they're, they're opposing sides like that. It's, it's essentially a stalemate. So that's, that's a key race that I don't think is getting enough attention. Oh, definitely. Control of the Senate is essential. I think most people think the Democrats are going to uh, retain control of the House, maybe even expand their majority a little bit there. But the Senate, I mean, we've seen just how important that's been uh, for President Trump. It's enabled him to confirm hundreds of of judges because all that required there is Senate confirmation. Um, But yes, if if the Democrats do not take the Senate, then uh, Joe Biden's agenda is basically going to be dead on arrival unless there are some crossovers, which is unlikely. I mean, going back to when President Obama won in 2008, the first thing that Mitch McConnell said was that my you know major job is uh, you know, Senate Majority Leaders to make uh, Barack Obama a one-term president, and and they control you know, whether things get voted for the filibuster still you know, would require 60 votes for anything, and so all the aspirations that Joe Biden wants to do, if it's on uh, climate, energy economy and taxes, none of those things are going to happen uh, if the Democrats don't win control of the Senate. And you know, a lot of times the things are linked. If, if Joe Biden is up 8 to 10 points nationally, that's certainly going to help his coattails in a lot of these Senate races. The Democrats would have to pick up you know, net four uh, in the Senate to take control, um, and they're, they're likely to lose a seat in, in Alabama, uh, pretty assured. But as of now, I think it's about a 75% chance that Democrats are likely to uh, take control of the Senate. They could uh, pick up seats in places like uh, Iowa, in North Carolina, Arizona, and Colorado. And so um, I think that, as of now at least, if you do believe the polls, I think that looks likely. But the margin also is important. You know, Rather than just be a 50-50 tie that uh, Kamala Harris, the vice president, would have to break, if you can have a little breathing room uh, with you know a few seat advantage, then even if there's some more moderate members that you may lose on some things, you'll still have a working majority you know, to pass things in the agenda. So that's clearly the goal. And just like with Joe Biden fundraising for Democrats in a lot of these states, even places like South Carolina, which normally are competitive, have been very strong for the Democrats. And so they're hoping, you know, to totally con- to seize all three branches of government and hope to do some political payback for some of the things that have been occurring for the Democrats on, on judges and things like that for these last four years. Two weeks today, uh, and we shouldn't see the finish line from here. Aaron, it's always great to get your perspective on this. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. Anytime. Take care. Aaron Call, of course, Director of Debate at the University of Michigan. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.